The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Tuesday, May 7th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It has been four days, and we still haven't figured out this particular presidential idiom. It started off as a mountain, and it ended up being a mouse. But he knew that because he knew there was no collusion. Now, you might say, well, of the two men in that conversation, who's more likely to be confused about molehills and mice or mountains and lions, the native English speaker or the one with limited expertise in English? But then again, don't they both kind of have limited expertise in English? Just as you might say, of the two men on that call, wouldn't the one who is more invested indeed charged with assuring that U.S. elections are free and fair be less willing to take on faith the assertion that U.S. elections are free and fair? You might say that. But again, you must ask yourself, wait, which of those two speakers are we referring to? More compelling is the exact type of synactic mistake that Donald Trump was deploying there. Idioms. Donald Trump frequently bites off more than he could shake a stick at. And everything's peachy-dory. Or there was that time when Mike Pence was lectured from the stage by the cast of Hamilton and Donald Trump, at real Donald Trump, tweeted, Our wonderful future VP Mike Pence was harassed last night at the theater by the cast of Hamilton. Cameras blazing. This should not happen. Or there was this attempt at asserting that the investigation into the death of Jamal Khashoggi was going to leave nothing uncovered. Or perhaps no stone unturned. But it became this. We are going to leave nothing uncovered. With that being said. What are the fact checkers to do with that? That actually, I would say, is a totally true statement. In 2016, he gave an interview to the New York Times and he asserted, quote, I have a pulse to the ground. And he once tweeted about fake news. It's finally sinking through. And then this is one of my favorites. He said this while campaigning in 2016. You know, because, you know, executive orders sort of came about more recently. Nobody ever heard of an executive order. Then all of a sudden, Obama, because he couldn't get anybody to agree with him, he starts signing them like they're uh, butter. Okay, three points on that. One, people had heard of executive orders. Maybe Donald Trump hadn't heard of them. Two, as president, Trump signed 37 executive orders to Obama's 36 in their first years. And in their second years, Trump signed 55 executive orders to Obama's 38. And three, third point, because this is the point we're talking about, no one signs things like butter. But though Trump seems to muddy the thread of English, once in a man in the moon, his messaging skills are actually pretty effective when they need to be. I'm not saying he's as sharp as brass tacks. It's more the case that he's actually a skilled practitioner of English in the most blunt terms imaginable. This was what Politico's Ileana Johnson said on Meet the Press on Sunday. Well, I think the emphasis has been on collusion, and uh, that was probably a mistake. I think that the emphasis in the political discussion should have been on the fact that our election was hacked. Now, some people were, of course, talking about that, but what we've heard over and over again uh, was talk about the Trump campaign's collusion. Hey, Ms. Passive Voice there, whose talk did we hear over and over? 
because the media, the good, normal, responsible media would over and over clarify, yeah, the president keeps saying collusion, but collusion isn't even a crime under the law. But the president said collusion so often and so relentlessly and through sheer repetition that it wound up landing on fertile media soil here and there. And we, we all as citizens had no chance. So cut to, there's been this emphasis on collusion by him in spite of us or the part of us that were doing their jobs. And so we got to hear. Trump's talk is not a surgical strike. It's a consistent artillery shelling. And after a while, his inexact and not at all factual assertions wear us down. The combination of using language so carelessly on the one hand, but with such blunt force on the other hand, is confounding and frustrating, and for him, effective. And it all marks him as an idiom savant. On the show today, and this our fifth anniversary week, it's a whole week of celebration, we, or I, hand my spiel over to an avian expert, or should I say avian sexpert? No, I definitely shouldn't. But you know that whole umpur-depur-duper thing that you hear at the end of our show? Well, instead of a traditional spiel, we elicit the help of an expert, who will tell us all she knows about the Perus of amorous Perus. Whether they are from Peru or anywhere else, that turkeys get frisky, or shall I say, arused. But first, one of the great recurring segments of the gist over these last five years has been when we've been joined by Chris Malamphy. He goes over all the number one hits of a certain year. So the year we picked for this segment here today was our foundation year, 2014. Hi, Mike. Uh, listen every day. It's a great show. I really enjoy it. I enjoy your perspective on things. Here's what I'm going to nominate. It's in the category of absolute funniest thing on the show. You talked about the Toy Hall of Fame nominees, and you did it in the form of a sports radio call-in show. Chris from Covington. Chris, you're on the toy. Yeah, hey, Mike, I just wanted to call in and say that this year Mr. Potato Head has got to get in the hall. Yeah, Mr. Potato Head is already in the hall, Chris. Yeah, well, I just think that he teaches you the fundamentals. You know, you only got a set number of holes, a set number of body parts to put in. There aren't that many choices. It kind of limits your play, but I think in a really constructive way. Chris, you're not listening to me. Mr. Potato Head is in the hall. He's already in the hall. Chris back to a more agricultural time in America, a classic He's in the hall, Chris. Thank you. It was fantastic, hysterical, great writing, great delivery. I want to hear it again. Thanks, Mike. Bye. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Five years ago, we began this enterprise, and very soon, I invited on my show a man who started writing for Slate just a few months before I started yapping for Slate. That man's name is Chris Malamphy, and his column for Slate is called, Why Is This Song Number One? And what we decided to do was take a year, talk about the songs of the year, and he would tell us why those songs were number one and fun things about those songs, and just delight and educate us about the number one billboard hits of a certain year. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mike. How are you? Happy anniversary. Thank you. What year do you think we should do on this, our fifth anniversary from a show that started in 2014? Well, can I confess? I mean, your producers told me to come in and be prepared to talk about virtually anything that's happened since... Everything since... since the show started, so... Give me everything. It could be anything. Um, but as you know, you know me, I like to narrow the focus and get specific. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking you're either going to go for... Really early or like the last 12 months. We're going right to 2014. All right. A year that was, I could I could say anything. I could say all about the bass. I could say rude. But why don't we just start with the first number one song of the year? Eminem, The Monster. What's Eminem been doing lately? All right. Only because you mentioned this in the intro, I'm going to say this, this, one, this song has a bit of a special place in my heart oh. because uh, it was the first song I wrote about for Slate for Why Is This Song Number One. And what you decide? Um, <laughs> Tell us. What I said in that article was that the reason it was number one is it was a sequel. Uh-huh. And that really is why it went to number one. It is not only Eminem, but it's Rihanna. One sheep, two sheep, going cuckoo, and cookie is cool key. But I'm actually weirder than you think. Cause I'm, I'm friends with the And what it is, is a pretty straightforward reboot of a formula that worked for them in the summer of 2010 when they went to number one together with the more ballad-like Love the Way You Lie. So if you think back to the summer of 2010, that was basically, with uh, you know a couple of exceptions, one of the songs of the summer of 2010. I believe it was competing with California Girls by Katy Perry that summer, but it was a pretty uh, uh, big that's hit. That's called foreshadowing in 2014. That is foreshadowing. Uh, so uh, Eminem uh, basically had one of the biggest hits of his career with Rihanna singing the hook. And so for his late 2013 album, but it's a little forgettable. And I think that's because it lives in the shadow of its better predecessor, Love the Way You Lie. So it's not a bad song, which brings us to, well, I don't want to crap all over the next two. Let's take them in reverse order. So in February is a song that I think deserves a bit of crapping on. Dark Horse by Katy Perry featuring Juicy J. Do you know who agrees with you? 
Katy Perry's record label. Uh-huh. I believe she signed a Capitol. Yeah. And the reason I bring them up is because when her album Prism came out in the fall of 2013, they didn't think Dark Horse was a single either. Mm. They thought this is an album cut. The reason Dark Horse became not only a single, not only a number one hit, but the biggest hit on the Prism album, it spent you know more weeks at number one than anything from that album, was because of Katy's fans. Katy Perry's fan base basically voted for this song, uh, both at iTunes with their purchases and in online polls saying it was their favorite track on the album. So the first number one was Eminem featuring Rihanna. We just talked about Katy Perry featuring Juicy J. In between, Pitbull featuring Kesha, big song, Timber. Yeah, Timber is an anomaly in pretty much everybody's career. Oh, cool. It's interesting that we're talking about this song right now when the number one song in America right now in the spring of 2019 is Old Town Road yeah. uh, by Lil Nas X, which is this song that has provoked controversy. I was on the Culture Gap Fest a couple weeks ago talking about this over whether or not it's a country song. Timber very much wants to be a hoedown. It was a pretty big hit for everybody involved. It was the last number one hit for Kesha, um, to be a little dark for a moment. This is the last moment when Kesha is working with producer Dr. Luke. This is a Dr. Luke record. This is just before they had their very acrimonious split in which she sued him for sexual harassment and to try and extricate herself from her contract. And this is sort of her last run at the top of the pops. Uh, And then she's paired with Pitbull, who is sort of the unstoppable, unkillable Cuban-American club pop action figure. He just keeps coming back. Every time you think Pitbull's done, whether it's reggaeton or EDM or, you know, whatever trap jam is kind of hot this summer, Pitbull cannot be stopped. He will come back. So I have noticed that the first three hits of the year were a little... Uh, aggressive or angry or I'm going to do this to you. And then we get to a very huge tonal shift, Pharrell Williams with Happy, which is a song that's great and ubiquitous, yet I'm not sure that in every date and every time a song like Happy, songs about happiness usually do well, but there's something very gentle about Happy that I would think in many times would prevent it from becoming as huge as it did. Happy is the number one song of 2014, the whole year. It spent 10 weeks at number one. Um, And it is truly, I would call it anomalous, except for the fact that there is one other number one hit that I know we'll talk about, which is similarly retro. Specifically, it's basically a secular gospel song, which makes it quite joyous. It's also the biggest hit of Pharrell's career as a performer. It's also kind of a hangover record from 2013. It actually came out in a summer movie from 2013, Despicable Me 2, a, <laughs> an animated sequel. And the only reason they didn't promote it to radio in the summer of 2013 was that Pharrell was too busy dominating the charts with other records. And it was only after Pharrell put out... Uh, a series of long-form videos in the fall called 24 Hours of Happy that 
the song started to catch on on the back of the video and become just an enormous hit. And uh, it pretty much dominated the entire late winter and spring of 2014. All right, next number one song to talk about of this year, Fancy by Iggy Azalea featuring Charlie XCX, who would go on to, I think, have a lot more impact in music than Iggy herself. Charlie XCX is, pardon the pun, basically the X factor of Fancy. She co-wrote it. She sings the main chorus hook. Uh, This is the same person who, by the way, co-wrote and sang the hook on the prior year's I Love It by Iconopop. Yeah. So Charlie XCX was sort of all over a number of hits in the first half of the 2010s. But then Iggy Azalea, how do you describe Iggy Azalea? And... mm, an Australian model who yeah. raps like a Southern male black rapper. Right. She's the poster child for charges of appropriation. Yes, she really <laughs> is. And Iggy Azalea is kind of everywhere in the summer of 2014, and then she's essentially gone. Yeah. I think that she really kind of had a freshness date on her <laughs> in terms of her appropriation, her sound. So um, whatever you can say about Iggy Azalea, she had the song of the summer of 2014 with Fancy, but uh, it proved almost impossible to follow up. All right. So now we'll get to the song that confuses you the most, I'll say. Rude by Magic. Sorry, Magic! Because it has an exclamation mark after Magic. Oh, boy. Where <laughs> do I begin with this damn record? So, improbably, this is a number one reggae song. Mm-hmm. Uh by a bunch of white Canadians. That, by the way, is not the strangest thing about it because there is a sizable Jamaican subculture and West Indian subculture in Canada uh, and quite a large reggae scene. And, you know, you can smirk at everyone from Snow with Informer in the 90s, a Canadian, uh, you know, dance hall artist from that period, to more, you know, legit uh, reggae lifers uh, like the Messengers. Uh, Or... or also bands that are clearly influenced slash more than influenced by reggae like The Clash and The Police that we don't even bat an eye when we talk about white guys doing essentially straight-up reggae. Right. I just think that Rude by Magic was a number one hit because people keyed into the goofy lyric. It's basically, I liken it to Two Princes by The Spin Doctors. Ooh, I like that song. It's uh, it's kind of a remake of the Hey Pops, Will You Let Me Marry Your Daughter trope of this hit from 20 years earlier. And it's about as cheesy. It was kind of a moment when we were ready for a small wave of reggae-flavored hits, and Magic were just in the right place at the right time. Taylor Swift had a couple big songs that year. Shake It Off and Blank Space. Where was Taylor in her swiftness. 2014 is a pivotal moment for Taylor Swift's career. This is the moment where she goes full-on pop. This is the year that she releases her, not to be confused with the year, album 1989, uh, named after the year of her birth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it is, in her own words, her first full-on pop album. Taylor isn't even trying to get on country radio. She is going full pop, and she starts it off with Shake It Off. 
an absolutely enormous hit. It explodes, uh, debuts in the number one spot. And like so many Taylor Swift singles before it, it's a little bit about Taylor herself. Oh, yeah. It's about Taylor (laughs) shaking off the haters and getting her audience to relate to her and see their own issues and their own freedoms through her. And what about the other number one of uh, the year for Taylor, Blank Space? So Taylor is number one twice in 2014 with a gap in between. And we'll talk about what goes in that gap in in the middle there. But the other number one hit for Taylor is Blank Space, uh, which I would say is probably her best number one hit. It's certainly my favorite. Cool. Yeah, I just, it's such an ethereal record. I would say Blank Space is the record on which the conceit of Taylor's album plays itself out most fully. Basically, she called her album 1989 because she not only wanted to do a pop album, she wanted to do an album that sounded like the 80s, that had that kind of frosty, synthy sound. And no record, no single from 1989 sounds more like the 80s, I would say, than Blank Space. So one last number one song of 2014 that we haven't talked about, and it's just pop perfection. It's Megan Trainers with All About That Bass. This is one of those songs, I think, in any era, it goes to number one. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass, 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 bass. Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't no size two, but I can shake... I think Megan Trainer was lucky that she dropped this single in 2014 because I think... Happy by Pharrell Williams had softened the ground for her in terms of the the retro vibe. Yeah. Uh, if she had come out even two or three years earlier when, you know, slightly harder EDM was dominating the radio, she might have had a harder time going to number one. Well, also to interrupt, let's credit that song you don't like uh, by Magic because that's a reggae song. And this is essentially a reggae song. Uh, or at I, least a uh, Caribbean-influenced steel drum. I would say it's more like an Edie Gourmet sort of <laughs> Latinate uh, girl group early 60s pop record. So basically, you know, if you if you take those kind of, you know, come on to my house kind of tracks, that's <laughs> basically the sound that Megan Trainor is aping. And then the other reason that All About That Bass was an enormous hit is that it was received by Americans as, believe it or not, a message song, almost bordering on a protest song. It's about body image. And it's about, you know, loving your curves and saying so openly. But the song doesn't have that much bass in it either. No, ironically, <laughs> it's a record with not much sonic bass. <laughs> yeah. And yet it's called All About That Bass. But um, no, Americans really love Unlike the message. Unlike the song Big Bottom, which has a lot of bass, a lot of bottom. Big Bottom is all about the bass. No, Americans received All About That Bass as a message song, and they liked the message. It was about the lyric as much as it was about the hook. So the fact that it was catchy and, you know, approachable and friendly didn't hurt. But the fact that it, you know, had something to say about body image, however glib and shallow, that made a huge difference. And this is a look back at 2014, a celebration of the celebration of all that and more 
with my guest and friend over these last five years, Chris Malamphy. Chris, I have to say that these segments, I think I could say without contradiction, have been the most popular on the show. If nothing else, put them in a time capsule. People love them, love coming back to them. There's a reason we usually schedule them for Fridays, so it's so people can uh, chew over them and listen to them over the weekend. You always uh, bring insight and clarity Thank you so much for doing this these last five years. Mike, it has been my honor, and uh, I am glad if, to quote Pharrell, I make everyone happy. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Sunshine, she's here, you can take a break. I'm a hot air balloon, I could go to Hey, my name is Ariel, and I'm from California, and in the summer of 2015, the moment when you discovered Oomperu Depru Dupru, that was a great moment. I just think some people may need to know what Oomperu Depru Dupru means. Hi, my name's Rob from Florida. I think you should revisit the reason for Oomperu Dupru, whatever you say to end of your segment and explain what it means. Hello, Mike. This is Chris from Williamsburg, Virginia. Your segment on Unpru Depru Dupru actually changed my life because definitely there's time before Unpru Depru Dupru and time after Unpru Depru Dupru, and I think that all of your listeners deserve a second chance. So revisit that segment. I'd love to hear it. Take care. Bye. Now, listeners, I am about to say a phrase, but I don't want you to get the wrong idea. The show is not ending just because I say umperu, depru, duperu. But for the first time ever, I wanted to really get into the scientific background of umperu, depru, duperu. The phrase started from a bastardization of the Portuguese. Essentially, I think I am saying, and many a Portuguese speaker has told me I'm kind of wrong, but also kind of close. I think I am saying... A Peruvian turkey penis. Now, on the show before, I have admitted, I've done a little research, turkeys don't really have penises, and I've left it at that, but now is the time to get into it. So joining me now is Patricia Brennan. She is an assistant professor of biology at Mount Holyoke College, where she is an expert on, well, you tell me, Dr. Brennan, how would you define your expertise? Well, I'm an evolutionary biologist, but I'm also a behavioral ecologist with a uh, interest in animal genitalia. Yes, I have an interest in animal genitalia too, but mine came mostly because I say this phrase that sounds like fake Latin. Now I have said, I know that turkeys don't have penises, but what do they have or what do at least the males have? Well, the males have something called a non-intromittent penis. It's it's kind of like these little bodies that inflate um, with lymph, actually, interestingly enough, Mm -hmm. rather than blood. Oh. But it doesn't really protrude anywhere. Like, it's not like a penis, like you would think of a penis. It doesn't actually go inside the female vagina. It just kind of goes into the entrance of her cloaca. And the cloaca in a bird is like the opening, the single opening through which everything comes in and out of the bird, right? So Everything um, goes in and out, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a nasty place, if you ask me. (laughs) Wait, so when we stuff a turkey, when we cook, are we using the cloaca? I don't think you should use a cloaca. I hope you're not using the cloaca. Yeah, not without permission. Um, (laughs) So the male turkey will just place his non-intromittent penis sort of on it or next to the female vagina 
and then the, is it sperm will get inside there? That's right, yeah. So actually we don't know the the particulars of how these non-intromittent penises work because they, they really haven't been studied in great detail. And the females, you know, the males have this little non-intromittent uh, penis, but the females also have an equivalent uh, homologous structure, just like clitoris and penis in mammals. Do you know if the clueless male turkey doesn't know how to find the female cloaca? <laughs> I'm sure there are some some of those out there. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that the, the turkeys that, that we breed commercially actually have lost the ability. The males don't even know anymore what to do. They have lost the ability to really kind of figure out what end of the female do they have to go and mount and how are they going to kind of balance and, and do the deed. And so all the turkeys that, that you eat that are commercially bred, um, they are the result of artificial insemination. So they have people whose job it is to collect sperm from these toms, from these, these males, uh, and then they use that sperm to actually artificially inseminate the females um, so that they can have fertile eggs. Wow. It's very sad, actually. Do you know, do you know if this, <laughs> Because, yeah. you know, sex is like such a, such a basic instinct, and to kind of like get rid of that in an animal seems very dramatic to me. Now, do all uh, birds have a cloaca? Is this the structure in all birds? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and reptiles as well. So it's a, it's a trait of this, um, this group. Does that mean mammals are the only species uh, with penises? No, no. Other reptiles do have fully intromittent penises. And in fact, other birds have fully intromittent penises, like ducks, for example. Uh, they have very giant penises. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I know that you're an expert on the duck penis, right? <laughs> that's right. And the right. Cork, corkscrew <laughs> yeah. shape. Yeah. Yeah. The weird thing is these non-intromittent penises, because either you have a penis that's like fully intromittent and it goes where it's supposed to go so that it can put sperm close to female eggs, or mm-hmm. you really don't have anything. So this kind of like in-between little step of the turkeys uh, yeah. and many of these galliform birds, you know, like uh, uh, roosters and quail and things like that, that's what is kind of a little weird. Like, why does that remain? And, you know, there, it might be that it helps guide sperm a little bit at the entrance of the cloaca, or it might be because it feels good. I mean, we don't really know. Uh, again, nobody's really studying this in detail at the moment. So ducks have a penis. What other birds have what we would consider to be a penis? Um, essentially, the, the kind of more ancient uh, birds, so things like ostriches, uh, they have penises that are quite large, uh, rheas, you know, the big um, flightless uh, ratites, they're called. Uh, all yeah. of them have penises. The tinamous, which are these little chicken of the forest in South America, they have penises. Um, but it's only about 3% of birds that actually have penises. Huh. Most birds actually lost them. Oh, so as a general rule, the older evolutionary birds have them. So it seems, uh, I don't know if I should worry, it seems that evolution uh, evolves the penis away. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, oh uh, you know, the, one of the possible reasons why this might be the case, believe it or not, might be female choice for males without a penis. Yeah. Yeah. Hannah Rosen wrote a book about this. No, I think you're right. So as a professor of biology and someone who studies this, after a while, do you look at the sexual reproduction of birds in no different way than, say, someone who studies the flight of birds or the eating pattern of birds. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that when I do my research, it gets a lot of press uh, attention. 
But it's only because it is penises and vaginas, and we just don't talk about penises and vaginas enough, right? So, but it's no different than studying stomachs or livers. You know, they, they, these are organs that perform, you know, absolutely critical functions in animals. And it just happens to be that, that in this case is, is sex. And so that makes it a little bit taboo for some people and even more interesting to other people. So, but it's, it's essentially the same. It's just another organ. Yeah, in terms of waving the banner of ignorance pretty proudly, I know about five or six years ago, Fox did a poll and something like 90% of Fox viewers decided amongst themselves that studying duck genitalia is a waste of government spending. But you would think they wouldn't say that about studying, you know, duck flight or duck feeding patterns. So there's definitely people bringing their own uh, interpretations, their own background to a biological function. And I think it probably says something more about the hangups of the uh, Fox viewers who didn't like it than the actual <laughs> science involved. I might have to agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. What have, if someone's very skeptical though, and they said, oh, oh, tell me why studying duck genitalia or penis genitalia, well, how does that add to the wealth of human knowledge in a real way? What's the answer? Well, there are so many different answers. Um, so here, I'll give you an example. I, after I published one of my papers where we found that duck penises avert in a fraction of a second, essentially avert and inseminate females in a fraction of a second, they essentially have something called an explosive aversion uh, mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a conversation with an engineer who works on cooling of coils for refrigeration because he couldn't understand the physics of how a penis could actually do that and not get fried along the way, you know, when you're having moving this giant mass in such a quick way. And I don't know, I don't know if he's going to be able to figure out the physics behind this mechanism. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But that's the point of science, right? It's that we do basic science that generates knowledge that then someone else can come in and they can be like, oh, wow, wait a minute, you know, this is weird. Let's look at it some more. And is that unpredictability that makes it, you know, hard for people to, to understand the connection between all this knowledge that we generate in science and how it ends up impacting humans? But if you flip the question, and if I were to ask you, is there anything that's useful to humans that did not start with basic science, well, the answer is no. Everything that right. we use and that is actually useful is started with some basic science, and some of that basic science likely came from, uh, you know, questions that had to do with basic reproduction in animals because, you know, this is a big part of what we do in humans, and things go wrong in your reproductive area, well, you better have an answer, and you better want your doctor to have an answer, right? So there is, there is a lot like that. I think it's almost weird that, people would have this aversion. It's it's as if you ask them, hey, do you want to know how animals work or not? I would assume most people would say, yes, I prefer not to walk around in a state of, or that the scientific community doesn't walk around in a state of ignorance thinking they work by magic. So if you try to figure out how other organisms work, you're going to try to figure out how the all parts of the uh, other organisms work, including the sexual organs. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, because again, is the everything that animals do, you know, all the eating, all the fighting, all the flying, everything in the end really is for sex. Because if you don't pass your genes on to the next generation, you just became an evolutionarily dead end. So sex is really yeah. actually critical to life. And, you know, we have many, many, many organisms in this planet that actually rely on sexual reproduction to, to live their lives. And, and so... 
How do they do it? Why do they do it? You know, how is it so different in all these different groups? Those are really interesting and fundamental evolutionary questions that we should be studying for sure, even if they make people a little bit uncomfortable. It's all for sex. In the case of the duck, a split (laughs) second of sex. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. How long does it take really for them? A third of a second. Oh my God. I would advise that they just close their eyes and think of baseball or England. But you know, they're probably not listening to me. I don't know if you could tell, Professor, that most of my interest in uh, animal sexual reproduction is for the jokes. And I think that's a legitimate interest too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have nothing against that. And in fact, I I have learned to just kind of laugh at the stuff that I find sometimes because sometimes it is a little bit ridiculous and fascinating at the same time, right? And so there's nothing um, wrong with a giggle. That's right. Although I'm sure the duck community or the turkey community would look at us and say, what the hell's Netflix and chill? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Patricia Brennan is an assistant professor of biology at Mount Holyoke College. And uh, to you, I say, um, thank you so much, professor. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They have been busy debating between themselves which one is the fella over there with the hella good hair. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcast, along with Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcast, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcast, would just like to acknowledge that occasionally it is not all about the base. I mean, some parts are in some small way not base related. Acknowledged? Very good. The gist. Clap along if you feel like happiness is truth. Okay, so all those people clapping, I'm going to say the show's not for them. I'm not getting all Buddhist life is suffering on you, but come on. Let's get real here, people. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>